0: The news continues, so let's hand it over to Michael Smirkanish and CNN
1: Tonight.
2: John, thank you for that. I am Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to CNN Tonight. It's winter's eve, a new season literally setting in along with this virus. We're all done with COVID, but COVID isn't done with us. And that's why President Biden is about to address our pandemic-weary nation tomorrow to try and jolt us into action for this new front in the war with Omicron on the march. Omicron has just become the most dominant variant in the U.S. The CDC is reporting it accounts now for almost three-quarters of new cases. A month ago, I'd never heard of Omicron. The first detection here was December 1st. And now, here we are 19 days later, it accounts for three out of four new cases. So with this new variant quickly taking hold, the White House says this Biden speech is not going to be about locking the country down. But rather about what to expect in these winter months, what steps we can all be taking now, and some dire warnings for the unvaxxed in particular. Will Biden's new warnings resonate? Remember, he campaigned on ending this pandemic, but nearly a year into his presidency, even with the miraculous vaccines, COVID is still raging with a vengeance. We're hearing now that some of his advisors are encouraging him to alter the messaging about ending the pandemic with no signs of COVID ever disappearing. Instead, to steer public attention away from the total number of cases and focus on severity, how much more dangerous this virus is for the non-immunized. Only 61% of the country is fully vaccinated at this moment. That's low in comparison to a lot of countries in Europe, like Spain with 80% fully vaxxed, or Denmark or Ireland, also with more than three quarters of their populations fully immunized and only 18% in total have been boosted here so far, a number that sounds especially concerning with so many gathering for Christmas as we speak. So could this potentially help President Biden boost the booster effort?
0: Both the president and I are vaxxed, and uh, did you get the booster?
3: Yes. I got it too. Okay, so... Um... Oh, don't, 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 That's all, there's a very
2: tiny group over there. Not only did Donald Trump reveal to his base yesterday that he's boosted, he quieted down those in the crowd who pounced on him for it and tried to reverse their psychology on vaccines. Take credit for it. Take credit for it. It's a great,
3: what we've done is historic. Don't let them take away. Don't take it away from ourselves. You're playing that, you're playing right into their hands when you sort of like, oh, the vaccine.
2: Interestingly, the Fox Corporation just tightened its vaccine rules, and that includes Fox News employees. As of next Monday, all working at Fox in New York City will have to show proof of at least one dose of the COVID shot, removing the option to get tested weekly instead due to a, nick, a new strict citywide mandate. New York City now asking for federal help to beat back Omicron. Dr. Ashish Jha, great medical mind from Brown University's School of Public Health, just wrote a column with some keen perspective on what he thinks our way forward should be. He writes in The Atlantic, don't panic about Omicron, but don't be indifferent either. Navigating the next wave will require charting a middle course between dismay and dismissal. And our clear goals must be preventing deaths, protecting our hospitals from crushing caseloads, and keeping schools and businesses open. So how do we do that? We need more vaccinations, he says, a massive increase in the availability and use of rapid tests, a clear strategy for schools, and we can all make modest sacrifices in the coming weeks, like avoiding large holiday parties and other unmasked indoor gatherings. What say another pandemic preparedness MD? Joining me now is Dr. Zeke Emanuel, former member of President-elect Biden's COVID Advisory Board during the transition and former Obama White House health policy advisor. Dr. Emanuel, thanks for coming back. Omicron clearly spreading rapidly. The question is, do we yet know of its severity of disease in comparison to prior strains?
0: No, it's not clear whether it's less severe or more severe, but even if it's less severe, uh, if it's more infectious, you're going to have more people come down with serious illness. And again, having an increase in hospitalizations, an increase in ICU use, and an increase in deaths. And that's, I think, the big problem that we're facing.
2: Can we at least say that it's having disparate impact on the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated?
0: Oh yes, it definitely is worse for the unvaccinated. uh, Many times more likely to die from it. Uh, And it appears that the people who are vaccinated uh, who get a breakthrough infection, have mild symptoms. And that's good, uh, but it's, uh, it's still worrisome. And it's spreading so rapidly with incubation times of two to four days uh, that uh, you can see, as you pointed out, in two week, uh, three weeks, it's really exploded and come to dominate the country.
2: So if President Biden were to call you, and for all I know he has, and say, Zeke, I need your advice again, as you provided during the transition, what do I tell the nation tomorrow? You'd say what?
0: Well, there are four things that we can do to really fight this vaccine. Number one, to fight this virus. Number one are vaccinations. We have to get more of them. I do think we're going to need more mandates. We've tried everything else. We've tried educating people. We've reduced the price to zero. We've tried incentives. We've made it readily available. Uh, We're going to need mandates. And that's just, you know, we're not going to get past the 61, 2% uh, just by asking people. We've been stuck at that uh, level for several months now. So we are definitely going to need to have uh, more mandates. Uh, Then we have testing. We have to flood the zone with tests. Um, They are... You know, that needs to be done. We need probably two to three billion tests a month, Uh, not hundreds of millions, billions of tests a month. If we want people in America to take, say, two tests a week before gatherings and other things. Um, And then you have masking. We have to upgrade from sort of flimsy cotton masks to really serious N95, KN95 masks. Wear them indoors, wear them outdoors if you're going to a crowded situation. Um, And then we have ventilation, which has not been well publicized here, getting HEPA filters and making sure that the air is uh, better and and filtering out the uh, virus particles. So those are the four things. And the fifth thing we're waiting on is for the Merck and Pfizer drugs that really uh, shorten the impact of getting an infection to be authorized by the FDA. That should happen pretty soon, And then getting them out to people who are infected is going to be a very big and important task.
2: Should every American be provided with a rapid test? Uh, To be fair, what I'm about to show you is two weeks old, and this is moving at a fast clip. But this is White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki two weeks ago on that issue. Roll it. Why
1: not just make them free and give them out and have them available everywhere?
4: Should we just send one to every American? Maybe then, then what ha- then what happens if you if every American has one test? how much does that cost and then what happens after that
2: what, what's the answer to her question? Should we just send one to every American? Is that even practical?
0: Well sending one is probably not adequate for omicron you're going to have to send more and the answer is yes it's practical. not only has Britain showed that you can do it, you call up the Uh, National Health Service, and they will mail out to you uh, tests. Uh, But Colorado, New Hampshire have done similar things. Um, I think the other alternative is just the federal government should buy them, drive the price as low as possible, uh, get more tests authorized, and distribute them to pharmacies and grocery stores and doctor's offices, where for either nothing or a nominal amount, people can pick up tests. The situation now where you have to pay $25 for two tests and you can't find any because there aren't, they're not available is unacceptable. I mean, we're asking people to test before holiday gatherings with their family, but if they can't get a test, what good is that advice?
2: Do you think that President Biden has received that message?
0: Oh, yes. I'm sure they've received that message. I think that-, that, that Did you give them uh, that message? With the- that episode with Jen Psaki uh, made it clear that her answer was not an acceptable answer for most Americans.
2: Yeah, Dr. Emanuel, your prescription, your four steps or your five steps, if we talk about the pill, sounds reasonable to me in Philadelphia, sounded reasonable to me when I was in New York last week, I'm sure sounds reasonable in Chicago. It's a big country where I hear from radio listeners every day who don't see people in masks. How do we reach the rest of the country?
0: Well, again, I think that one thing the government could do, and we recommended this a a year ago, that we mail out good masks to people uh, free of charge, that to every household we send five masks, for example, and 95 masks. That would be very, very useful. First of all, it would say this is normalized. This is what people do. And the second, it would make it available so that there's no barrier again to them to get those kind of masks.
2: Stick with me for just a moment. I want to respond to some social media and my my hunch is that it'll be more in in your expertise than my own. What do we have, Vaughn? Put it up on the screen and let me just uh, take a look. Uh, We have to learn to live with this virus and move on with life. We have vaccines and medications, but we cannot shut down or lock down over this anymore, says EMR. You would say what?
0: I totally agree. We can't lock down, shut down. We're going to have to learn how to live with coronavirus. And part of living with it is taking precautions to reduce risk, like wearing a mask going indoors, like improving the ventilation indoors, and like getting a vaccine. That's living with it ignoring it is not living with it that's just asking for trouble
2: right you sound to me like this is a good thing like dr ajish ja from brown in that there's a middle road somewhere in here that we should be traveling on one more if i've got time for dr emmanuel what do we have Yes, families need at-home, free or inexpensive rapid tests that are bulk packs, no lines at clinics. I mean, that's one of the frustrating things in New York City to see people who are standing in line, wrapped around a block, waiting for a test. You've made this very clear. You think Americans need to get masks, need to get rapid tests, and that the government needs to be providing both. You can have the final word.
0: I totally agree with you. That I think that, and I don't think it's an unreasonable request by people. You know, tens and hundreds of billions of dollars have been allocated to things like testing and getting the schools ready and people should get it. That's the fat. We've got to remove all the barriers and put the effort, the, the, the tools to actually fight this uh, pandemic in people's hands. We've done that miraculously with the vaccines. And we have to do it with testing and masks.
2: Dr. Emanuel, thank you as always.
0: You're great, Mike. Thank you.
2: We turn next to the no that has turned Washington upside down. Is Joe Manchin really a hard pass now on Build Back Better? Did the key Democrat go back on his word to President Biden, or did the White House push him, as he said, to quote-unquote wit's end? All kinds of accusations are flying around, and there's a lot more high drama tonight. There's also a theory that the senator is actually doing Biden a favor by torpedoing his agenda. We'll take that up next with former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Joe Manchin on radio back home in West Virginia today, defending his move to sink Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan.
0: I'm not blaming anybody. I knew where they were and I knew what they could and could not do. They just never realized it because they figure, surely to God, we can move one person. Surely we can badger and beat one person up. Surely we can get enough protesters to make that person uncomfortable enough. They'll just say, "Okay, I'll vote for anything just quit well, guess what? I'm from West Virginia. I'm not from where they're from. And they can just beat the living crap out of people and think they'll be submissive,
2: period. While the media is still chasing the back and forth to figure out why this happened. For Democrats, the operative question seems to be how this impacts key house Democrats in swing districts who now have to go home and explain their vote for a $5 trillion bill in spending over 10 years without anything to show for it. And what this means for Democrats in the midterms Given that the latest CNN poll shows COVID and the economy far and away the top issues, did Joe Manchin just give them all a chance to shift their focus to what voters really want? My next guest knows what it's like to be a centrist out of step with his party these days. Former Congressman Charlie Dent joins me now. Hey, uh, Charlie, Congressman, nice to see you again. You compared Joe Manchin to John McCain in an essay that you just published at CNN.com, and you said we ought to be pinning a medal on Manchin's chest. How come? Well, I think Joe Manchin has been very forthright and
3: honest and open about where he stands. Uh, he's told everybody what his concerns and objections were. Uh, unfortunately, many on the left chose not to hear them. They won't take no for an answer. He's been quite clear. And just like John McCain, he voted against the health care reform bill in 2017. He put his thumb down and, and that ended up killing it, but that bill was problematic. And, you know, Joe John McCain, I think, you know, it was a a big moment for him. He showed some real guts and courage. I think that Joe Manchin is doing the same thing. He cannot be bullied. Uh, This is a man who knows what state he represents and he's listening to his constituents and he finds that the size and scope of this bill is too much. And I think he's correct, and I think he's correct that there are other issues like the ones you identified, Michael, uh, like inflation, the economy, uh, COVID. These are the issues that are front and center on the minds of many Americans, particularly after $6 trillion has been spent on COVID. And now we're talking about even more uh, spending.
2: You know that President Biden said that he had a commitment with Senator Manchin a couple of weeks ago. Last week here with me, Representative Jayapal was my guest. We discussed that. Here's what she said.
5: Most of Build Back Better was pre-negotiated, pre-conferenced with Senator Manchin um, and with the president. And I believe uh, the president when he said that he had a commitment and that he had confidence that he would get the 50 votes needed in the Senate. And I've spoken to the White House again recently. I believe that's still to be true.
2: Charlie, so you've got the progressives who feel like they got snookered, right? But you've also got among the Democrats moderates, I'm thinking of Josh Gottheimer, who voted for the House version of this bill and now is sort of exposed because in the end, they couldn't get it through the Senate. So I'm sure he has to worry about drawing a Republican opponent who said, hey, not even Joe Manchin would go along with what he was willing to support. Talk to me about the dynamics of progressives and moderates within the Democratic Party.
3: Well, the the moderates knew, I think they knew, when they voted for the Build Back Better version in the House, that it had almost no chance of passing the Senate. You know, with the SALT provisions, uh, with the immigration provisions, we knew. they knew that this bill was going to change substantially. I would argue that many House Democrats were BTU'd. Uh, That is, they were forced to walk the plank for a bill that was not going to become law. That's what happened. That's a bad place to be. Same thing happened to House Republicans in 2017 on the Obamacare repeal replace legislation. I voted against it in part because it was bad policy, but also I said that bill had no chance of becoming law ever through the Senate. So why vote for it? Same thing happened on the BTU tax with Bill Clinton many, many years ago in the 90s uh, when many Democrats, again, walked the plank. So I think if I'm a moderate, I'm upset. In fact, I hear a lot of talk about uh, people acting in good faith. Well, the moderates in the House, Gottheim brothers, they negotiated with the, the progressives on a budget resolution in August in exchange for a vote on the infrastructure bill September 27th. Well, the progressives and Speaker Pelosi reneged on that agreement. And they pushed it out until November, and then they got the moderates to vote for the Build Back Better that wasn't going to become law in order to vote on the uh, infrastructure bill. I saw how they behaved, and they—I think they did not operate in good faith uh, toward the moderates. And I—I'd be very upset right now. And I just saw that. uh, Quick. And I just saw the step. Quick. Final question, uh, if I may. And uh, yeah,
2: sure. Charlie, is this all just a negotiation? Is this all just shtick? And in the end, they get together and they pass something that's got a lot less of a price tag quick answer from you
3: uh yes if they they have to scale this thing down dramatically one maybe one of the major provisions that would be it as far as i'm concerned they might be able to get away with that but hey they all but called joe manchin a liar yesterday from the white house Uh, that's really not helping things so we'll see where this goes
2: but I, i think this is on life support right now thank you charlie as always thank you michael Build Back Better, the subject of tonight's survey question at smirkhanish.com. Do you agree with Senator Manchin? The Democrats, here's the quote, continue to camouflage the real cost of the intent behind this bill. Go to my website, vote yes or no. I'll give you the results at the end of this hour. Here's some more social media reaction that has come in thus far during the course of the program. They need to drop Manchin from the Democratic caucus. He is hurting Biden and the Democrats more than he is helping. Uh, Michael Wenning, you just heard Charlie Dent say, make the case that Manchin's actually helping the Democrats, that he didn't go this far, but that if Joe Manchin didn't have Manchin, that if Joe Biden didn't have Manchin as a buffer, he'd have to create him. Because it's actually Manchin, by this argument, who reigns Biden in from control by the most progressive elements of his party, which is not the way in which he got elected president. One more if we have time for it, and we do. Hertz, it's just another case of the Democrats eating each other alive while the Republicans sit by holding hands. Uh, SDM, yeah, it's, it is like herding cats. I mean, I think that's really always been the case relative to the Democratic caucus and whether it's the Senate or the House, Republicans much more monolithic in their approach. That kind of goes with the territory. When three retired U.S. generals say they are chilled to the bones about something, it gets your attention, right? It definitely got mine. These are three warriors who are very concerned about a repeat of January 6th and the possibility of a coup succeeding next time. They are warning our military must prepare now, and one of those generals, Paul Eaton, is here next. The Pentagon today trying to define a line that we have failed to mark as a society. Where is the line between political passion and extremism? The top brass in the military issuing new rules, which for the first time regulate troops behavior on social media down to the level of clicking like or using certain emojis. The physical act of liking is, of course, advocating,
3: right, and advocating for extremist uh, uh, groups, uh, certainly, you know, groups that that. that advocate violating the oath of the Constitution, overthrow of the government, terrorist activities. Liking is an adv- is an advocation, um, and that's laid out clear in the in- instruction.
2: The change comes as more than 70 current or former members of the U.S. military face charges for storming the Capitol on January the 6th. But even as the Pentagon updates its rules, a group of former generals say steps need to be taken to protect the chain of command in, the case, in case another coup attempt takes place. And that includes my next guest, retired Major General Paul Eaton, the former commanding general of the Coalition Military Assistance Training Team in Iraq. General, thank you for being here. First of all, what did you make of what Admiral Kirby said that now they're gonna be taking a look at, at who likes what in social media among military personnel?
4: Michael, first, uh, thank you very much for having me on board. Uh, Admiral Kelly is a good man, and uh, we have a lot of really good, competent men and women in the Pentagon trying to figure this out. Regulations and law typically lag behind technology, so we we now, in the face of the abundant uh, indicators and warning that uh, that we have a problem, uh, we are going after the the idea that social media can be a disruptive influence in the uh, chain of command, in units, and uh, we're, uh, we're beginning to get after it. Uh, there's plenty of work to be done, and it's, there's, there's this whole idea of, is it freedom of speech? Is it freedom of association? And uh, to your point earlier, where do you draw that line? And we'll figure it out. Uh, we've got uh, the best and brightest in the Pentagon to, uh, to do that for us.
2: Your concern is a scenario where whether one follows the chain of command is dependent upon party affiliation. Explain, and is that fantastical or is that a real issue?
4: Well, it's not fantastical. We, we, we've got a failure to imagine outcomes and failure to imagine what might precipitate outcomes. So what we have to do is acknowledge that uh, 39% of the uh, Republican Party do not believe that President Biden is the duly elected president of the United States. 17% in the same polling uh, indicate that uh, the use of violence to correct that outcome of uh, the presidential election is, uh, is okay. And you cannot have that level of negativity, of, of, of bad acting in a, in a major political party without infecting the rest of the United States, and sooner or later we draw our men and women in the armed forces from America's society at large, you cannot avoid infecting some of our more impressionable young men and young women, and that's uh, that's ongoing. So the Pentagon sees it. They're working it.
2: One percent of us bear the burden of service, military service. I shouldn't say us because I've never worn the uniform of my country, but it's 1% in round numbers. And yet among those charged for the events, storming the Capitol on January 6th, we're looking at 10% who were either active duty or veterans. What accounts for that?
4: Well, again, I go back to uh, the fact that uh, a lot of Americans, a lot of good Americans, you and I know them. We, we, we've we got friends, we may have family members, uh, who believe in this whole uh, stolen election so we've got people who actually fervently believe that there was enough shenanigans in our electoral system based on the constant drumbeat that you get out of Republican leadership that we had a flawed election no the 2020 election was one of the best one of the safest one of the most well monitored elections that we've ever had but we still have some young men and women who have bought that stop the steel uh, mantra that uh, that we get so we have just got to we've just got to message better we've got to fight the stop the steel messaging that is ongoing and we could stop uh, we could start it by uh, stopping fox news on any military installation that is that is anathema what the messaging tool that these guys are using to get into the armed forces of the United States are guys like Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity. These guys these guys have got to be cut out of the information stream going into the men and women of the armed forces of the United States.
2: Well, my, my pitch is people need to change the channel. Whatever channel they're watching, you got to mix it up and get out of your bubble, get out of your silo. General, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your insight.
4: My pleasure, Michael. Thank you very much.
2: From social media, what do we have? The guardrails held in 2020, but GOP-controlled legislatures are tearing them down and setting the stage for a successful coup next time. The republic was great while it lasted. Deep state grad, I, I'm not ready to, to bury the idea of the republic, but I think you're, you're correct in pointing out Uh, how close we came in 2020, and and those guardrails needing to be reinforced. I've said here in the last couple of nights, initially watching the events unfold, I thought it was much more organic and less planned than it really turned out to be. We'll talk more about that in the days ahead as well. This will sound strange. I'm going to lighten things up in our next segment by sharing an obituary. I promise it's not going to bum you out. You're going to Meet the author of the hilarious and snarky and even star-studded send-off for a woman you probably never heard of, but you won't forget, and that's his mom. Andy Koren is here to tell us why he wrote the loving tribute that is viral and reads a lot more like a celebrity roast. Next. A stunning headline in the New York Post caught my eye over the weekend. Quote, son's brutal obit of his plus-sized redneck mother goes viral. The idea that a son would trash his dead mom and go viral for it, you can imagine why I found that distressing. And then I took the time to read the actual obituary in the Fayetteville Observer. It was nothing like what the Post suggested. Here was an obituary that truly paid homage to a larger-than-life woman, a force who was unapologetically herself, flaws and all. Here's a piece of what her son Andy wrote, quote, because she was my mother, the death of Zafdick good time gal Renee Corin at the impossible old age of 84 is newsworthy to me. And I treat it with the same respect and reverence she had for, well, nothing. A more disrespectful, trash reading, talking and watching woman in North Carolina, Florida or Texas was not to be found. She played cards like a shark bold and played cribbage like a pro and laughed with the boys until the wee hours long after the last pin dropped. At one point in the 1980s, Renee was the 11th or 12th ranked woman in cribbage in America. And while that could be a lie, it sounds great in print. She also told me that she came up with the name for Sunoco. And I choose to believe this too. Yes, Renee lied a lot. She left me nothing but these lousy memories, which I and my family of five brothers and my sister-in-laws, nephews' friends, nieces' neighbors, ex-boyfriends, Larry King's children, who I guess I might be one of, the total strangers who all, to a person, loved and will cherish her forever. Andy Koren joins me now. Andy, I love it. And my hunch is she loved it. Am I right?
5: Well, first of all, It's such an honor to be here, Mr. King. And we've been waiting practically my whole life to meet my true father here in his time slot. So um, I hope you don't mind. We brought a portable DNA kit to um, make things official.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't even have the suspenders. Hey, I may as well go there first. Vaughn, put up the second of the passages that I want to read aloud. So you said this, COVID couldn't kill Renee. Neither could pneumonia twice, infections, blood clots, bad feet, breast cancer twice, two mastectomies, two recessions, multiple bankruptcies, marriage to a philandering sergeant major, a divorce in the 70s, six kids, one cesarean, a few abortions from the quietly famous abortionist of Spring Lake, North Carolina, or an affair with Larry King in the 60s. Renee was preceded in death by her ex-boyfriend, Larry. What is the deal on Larry King?
5: Listen... I'm here to find out we have, we, we've got time. This is your hour. Let's make, let's, let's get to the bottom of this. Uh, There are actually receipts um, in my family, which is a sprawling family, you know, five boys and a girl. And my mom ran around a lot in Miami in the early sixties, late fifties and early sixties. And she ran around um, with, you know, with the bad boys. And guess what Larry King was? He was kind of a you know a dirt bag. I think everybody knows his his early days were not golden. Okay, in a good way. In in
2: a in a good way, if there is such a
5: thing. Well, well, maybe I mean the story is is that he stole some money from my mom's parents, and that and that uh, that's finally what broke. All right, hang on a second. Let let's get back (laughs) to what she was. He's not
2: here to defend himself. I know. Not let's get back to what she was great at. mm -hmm. Here's what here's what your mom was great at. Dying her red roots, weekly manicures, dirty jokes, peer fishing, rolling joints, and buying dirty magazines. She said she read them for the articles, but filthy free speech was really Renee's thing. Hers was a bawdy, rowdy life, lived large, broke, and loud. I should tell people that on on her 85th birthday next spring, you're having a non-denominational memorial service. What the hell is that going to look like?
5: I hope it's gonzo and weird and loud and colorful and filled with Pepsi and carbs and Krispy creams And we have um, a, a real celebration of what I've been calling the Queen of the Bags, because that's what my brothers and I kind of jokingly refer to each other as. But we have a lively memorial for a lively woman. It's the least we can do. And the place that she truly loved, which was the bowling at B&B Lanes in Fayetteville.
2: And to go back where I started, mom would have loved the way that you've memorialized
5: her, right? Oh, my gosh. I mean, look, she was an atheist, so she doesn't believe in an afterlife. So I can't, you know, comfort myself thinking of my mommy in some um, magical place, thinking about and laughing about what's happening. But I can tell you that over the years of, of writing about her in various places, storytelling plays, etc., she always took. Uh, tremendous pride in being a source of inspiration for me, as any Jewish mother really would be.
2: Andy, we're gonna send a we're gonna send a film we're gonna send a film crew May ten of twenty twenty two just be, to watch I, all this happen. Okay.
5: Oh, I think it's gonna be really good. Um, good material. I think it's gonna be plenty. Gonzo. I mean, North Carolina is rowdy and Fayetteville is dirty, so it's a great combo.
2: Okay. (laughs) Sorry. I'm laughing as I say, sorry about your loss. Thank you, Andy.
5: You know what? Hey, Spirconish, people needed a laugh. And I'm really, truly, I mean this. I'm so honored that my mommy could could really give people a moment to laugh in the face of death because she did for 84 years. Uh, That's a
2: life well lived. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. I don't know what to say. Are we doing social media? Is there social media after that, or am I I just... No. Okay, good. The SAT and ACT exams are facing their own test when it comes to their future. One of the nation's top universities says it won't require high school students to submit those test scores for the next few years. Bob Schaefer is an expert in the so-called testing optional movement, and we'll look at what this means, this movement for the battle to end the standardized testing requirements with him next. Next. Welcome news for some students aiming for an Ivy League education. Harvard University won't require SAT or ACT scores for admission for the next four years through 2026. School officials first implemented the policy after the pandemic began because students were having a hard time accessing testing sites, and they still are, and that's why other Ivy Leaguers like Columbia and Cornell are doing the same through 2024. It's unclear if the testing requirement will return, but what's notable is the sea change in recent years. The University of Chicago was the first top 10 school to go test optional in 2018, pre-pandemic. Several well-known schools like the University of Washington, Oregon State, Indiana University then followed. Pre-pandemic, 1,070 schools went test optional. That number has now jumped to over 1,800 schools. The pandemic has only expanded the movement More than 90% of schools on the U.S. News and World Report list of top 100 colleges and universities nationwide are no longer requiring the scores. So should this be the new norm and should we do away with the tests completely? Bob Schaefer is the executive director of Fair Test, That's a testing reform organization. Bob, welcome back. Nice to see you. What would be the common denominator? How, if I'm a university, am I supposed to compare disparate school districts?
1: Thanks, Michael. The schools that have been test optional for years, and Bowdoin was the first to go test optional 51 years ago, know that high school record grades are a better predictor of undergraduate success than any test ever will be. So you don't need test scores to make fair and accurate decisions. And that's why there are over 1,800 schools listed as test optional or test free on our website at fairtest.org.
2: When you say optional, what does that really mean? Is that, is that a wink and a nod kind of thing? Like, hey, you don't have to do it, but of course the, the high achievers are still out there going to prep courses and taking it to give them an edge.
1: Uh, quite the contrary. Last year, nearly 600 college and university leaders signed a statement saying optional means optional. You will neither be advantaged nor disadvantaged in the admissions process by submitting test scores. And I've been on a number of panels with admissions directors who talk about their numbers, and that's what the data shows. You are not at an advantage when you submit test scores. You know, what matters most is your high school record, your grades, the rigor of your curriculum, your leadership abilities, your community service, extracurricular activities, a much richer set of evidence about what a young person is and can do than filling in bubbles on a Saturday morning.
2: It was already headed in this direction, as I think I explained in the intro, but it now appears that the pandemic will be the death knell of the standardized test as we knew it.
1: It's certainly true that test optional admissions is the new normal for the foreseeable future. A few schools will continue requiring the test, the US service academies, whose policies are made by Congress, um, a couple conservative states where admissions policies are determined by political appointees like Georgia and Florida are requiring the test. And a a number of small, very conservative, often religious colleges still have a testing requirement. But for the vast majority of students now in high school, there will be no requirement to take the ACT or SAT. We're up well over 75% of all colleges and universities in the country do not require test scores for the next couple of years.
2: I am, I am a, as a parent, four-time veteran of the process. Now, I think, thankfully finished. I have lots of thoughts on this. Next, the Common App needs to go, makes it too easy to apply to too many schools. And if you're going to require recommendations, and I think they're a good thing, there ought to at least be one that comes from a classmate. Just my two cents. Bob Schaefer, thank you.
1: Thank you, Michael.
2: We'll be right back with more reaction to tonight's program and survey results. Results of tonight's survey from my website at smirconish.com. Do you agree with Senator Manchin that Democrats, quote, continue to camouflage the real cost of the intent behind this bill? Obviously, with regard to Build Back Better. 9,000 voted. 59%, interestingly, say no, they do not agree with Senator Manchin. Let's call it 60 40, 59 to 41 in disagreement with the senator. More social media reaction that came in during the course of the program. Here's what we have. Uh, No one individual should have the power that Manchin has right now. Our two-party system doesn't work anymore. Michael, I guess I could respond and say, well, Joe Manchin doesn't have the power. 51 senators do. I mean, I get your point, obviously, that, that one individual is holding it up, but it kind of overlooks that we've got a body of 100 and 51 of them are saying, no, we don't want the largest expansion of the societal safety net since LBJ, I mean, glass half empty, glass half full. Think about it that way. One more, I think I've got time for. People who aren't wearing masks isn't because they don't have masks. It's because they are being told not to wear them by Republicans and Fox News. Yeah, I, I, I get your point, Iowa to Colorado, uh, Dr. Zeke Emanuel was here earlier in the hour. And, and frankly, I, I like what he said. I think he made some news when he, as a former advisor to the president-elect, said the government ought to be providing uh, you know, rapid testing kits to everybody and masks, an upgrade in the masks. Whether people would use those kits and whether people would wear those masks, uh, I get it. That's still an issue to be determined. Thank you for watching. I'll be back here tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight begins in a moment with Laura Coates sitting in.